from the high desert in the great American Southwest. I bid you all good evening, or a good morning, as the case may be, across this great land of ours. And welcome to another night of Coast to Coast AM. That would be live talk radio from the Tahitian and Hawaiian Island chains in the west, all the way eastward to the Caribbean and the uh, Virgin Islands, U.S. Virgin Islands, south into South America, north to the Pole, and worldwide on the Internet. This is Coast to Coast AM, and I'm Art Bell, and uh, we've got a very interesting guest tonight. He is Charles Cagle. And he is not a rocket scientist. That was last night. <laughs> As a matter of fact, uh, in a moment I'll fill you in on the rest of the week. He doesn't have a bachelor's, master's, nor Ph.D. high school, of course, and then a commercial fisherman on the West Coast, fished salmon, albacore tuna, off uh, the Oregon and Washington, California coast, then king crab out of Kodiak, Alaska, Drafted then in 1966 from Kodiak, joined the U.S. Army, went to basic uh, training at Fort Ord, California, then on officer candidate school at Fort Knox, Kentucky. Graduated a green second lieutenant, went on to helicopter school at uh, Fort Walters, Texas, then uh, Hunter Army Airfield, Savannah, Georgia. Graduated, got his wings, and went to Vietnam was promoted to captain at age 22. And I could uh, give you so very much more because he gave me so very much more. But uh, Charles Cagle is a self-educated physicist. And what he has to say to you tonight um, ultimately may uh, concern you, uh, though it's Nothing that you have not heard before. Uh, Charles Cagle began investigating ball lightning, I would guess almost as a passion. And from his investigation into ball lightning, if my understanding is uh, basically accurate, he developed a thesis uh, with regard to the way our sun works as it relates to our Earth and what is coming as a result of that and what is coming uh, apparently fairly soon as a result of that. Uh, so we'll get to uh, Charles Cagle in a moment. The Russians think that they have an Iraqi solution. The Iraqis are beginning to say they're going to let the American inspectors back in just so long as they don't dominate the inspections. So it's beginning to sound an awful lot like the um, Iraqis are beginning to cave in as more and more forces, B-52s, F-117 stealths, and you name it, it's on the way. And the Iraqis apparently concluded we were very serious, and so the investigation, or the uh, uh, UN uh, investigation of their biological chemical program may be back on again shortly. U-2s have flown. Nothing has shot at them. And that's kind of where that stands. The FBI is out of the TWA-800 uh, investigation, declaring it to be, they believe, a mechanical problem, not a criminal problem. Well, all right, here we go. I believe to the state of Oregon, where I suspect it's rather rainy. Here is Charles Cagle. Charles, welcome to the program. 
Uh, thanks. Is that where you are? You're up in Oregon someplace? I am. I am. I don't believe it's raining right now where I'm at, but it's always raining somewhere, it seems. Uh, well, I think on the coast of Oregon, they're getting slammed pretty well. Uh, power was out. They had a lot of high winds and a bunch of rain earlier in the day, and yet another West Coast storm uh, passes. Anyway, Charles, it's great to have you. I understand that your odyssey, your quest, began with an investigation of ball lightning, and I've always been, myself, very, very interested in ball lightning. So what got you interested in ball lightning? Well, I read an article in uh, 1972. Uh, in fact, it was 1972. I think it was December 14th issue of uh, New Scientist, which was a British publication. And uh, it, the title of it was The Enigma of Ball Lightning. Mm. I read it. And, uh, you know, the thing that was sort of amazing was that there were 40 different theories which automatically told me that there wasn't a great deal of consensus in the scientific world about a really important issue. And a lot of people didn't even believe it existed, yet it actually has been written about since the time of Aristotle. Well, I'm not a meteorologist, so I barely even know what lightning is, but it's my understanding that regular lightning... Uh, contrary to popular belief, does not go from a cloud to the ground, but rather from the ground to the cloud. Is that correct? It can go either way, actually. Really? Uh, yeah, but uh, I think for a, a while they thought it was only one way, but they've, you know, it, it actually can traverse either direction. All right. Well, then the obvious first question, I guess, is what is the difference between lightning, as we have all seen it, and ball lightning? Well, ball lightning, lightning, I guess you could just say is a is a is a discharge. Uh, uh, between two points, where ball lightning is a, uh, you know, as people see it, they see it as typically a spherical glowing ball, can be very bright, uh, also can be dim enough that you can see through it. And it is detached, it is long-lived, it uh, can last anywhere from, uh, oh, just a few fractions of a second up to, uh, there's been cases where people have reported seeing a ball lightning uh, uh, last for as long as 30 minutes. That's naturally the extreme, but typically they last uh, four, five, ten seconds. You hear all kinds of really weird stories, people claiming that ball lightning has gone down chimneys, come out of fireplaces, come through windows, done all kinds of really weird things. Uh, accurate? Uh, very accurate, of course. It's really accurate. Uh, it, it, uh, you know, in fact, they, you know, they killed people. Uh, there was a fellow by the name of Ritchie who was uh, reproducing one of uh, Franklin's experiments, and and uh, not Richie, but Richmond, and um, he was in Paris. There's a real neat woodcut, and it shows this ball coming off his apparatus and hitting him in the head, and it killed him. <laughs> I, I should send you a copy of this woodcut because it's pretty. You know, here it comes from the 1700s, but uh, it it does a lot of bizarre things. I think one of the most bizarre things is is it'll you know it's been known to come aboard an aircraft come down the uh, aisle, pass right through the plexiglass uh, window in front of the pilots, and then go down the aisle. Holy smokes. And, and about the size of a of a soccer ball. And uh, then do a sudden exit stage left, right through the skin of the aircraft. Uh -huh. the passengers looked out, see it bouncing along the wing until it comes to them and drops off into space. Oh, you're kidding. That's an eyewitness report, you know. Uh -huh. um, oh, no, thank you. I've had enough rough flights without ball lightning on a flight. Oh, my God. Oh, oh what is uh, – now? I, here, I guess we'll start to dip in, but, I mean, uh, I 
I just, I can't in my own mind's eye, uh, I'm not a physicist, of course, but I can't understand what ball lightning is. I imagine lightning as a differential or a delta between two points that is then equalized by a strike of lightning. Boom. And, and so it doesn't seem like there's any relationship between that and what you're describing <laughs> might come down the aisle of an aircraft as a, as a ball. I mean, what the hell's that? Well, it's a, it, you know, it's, it's actually quite easy to describe phenomenologically in terms of a current, uh, as a, like a, low, a ring current. But, um, you certainly know what a uh, smoke ring is, right? Sure. I'm blown okay. all the time. They're, they're very non-politically correct. Sure. Okay. Well, smoke rings have a particular rotation. They don't rotate like a bicycle wheel. They rotate inward. Uh, so, well, a, a good way of describing it is to take a tornado that's rotating. So you've got this long rotating structure mm-hmm. and join its ends. As, oh, I see. I see what you're saying. Okay. Uh, okay. So I, I pull, it on, pull a tornado into a circle, and then you have the type of current rotation that exists in ball lightning. Now, what's interesting is this generates two counter-oriented magnetic surfaces, one on the outside of the current and then one on the inside. Um, so think of joining a slinky, for example. Take a slinky toy, join its ends. Sure. And um, so you got this big hollow place on the inside. Well, let me ask this. How is it created? I mean, we know how lightning occurs. Uh, how is ball lightning created? Is it created from a strike, associated with a strike? Is it created in midair as a simply a phenomena that we're going to find out how it's done? or uh, In other words, how is it formed? Well, okay. That's, that's a really good question, and I think that was one that troubled me for quite a few years. And and uh, and and so we just had to look at the phenomenon, what was common about all the phenomena. And, and but eventually, you know, if I could just cut straight to the chase, the, the fact is that there's a new, um, unrecognized rotation of a current vector. So you have a current flowing from point A to point B, and if the current density reaches a critical current density. And it does this, you know, has to do it fast. Um, then there is a rotation of the current vector uh, 90 degrees, and what that generates then is is a basically a ring current. A right ring current at the point of constriction. At the point of constriction. In other words, if you're producing a really dense current, you know, a very a tremendous discharge, like a lightning discharge. Right. Uh, sometimes portions of that channel can become uh, constricted, and but the process of constriction really uh, deals with uh, the fact that the charges are all attractively interacting one another. Now this this goes against what people have been saying, you know, because of, you know you you have a ham operator's license and. Uh, you know, you had to study a certain amount of electronic theory, and right. underlying the fundamental stone that underlies uh, most of modern physics is Coulomb's law. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out that Coulomb's law isn't actually um, a general case; it's a special case, and it only deals with charges that that um, have lots of relative motion. 
okay, you're losing me a little. Okay, I'm going to lose you. Uh, okay, so it, does ball lightning form for all intents and purposes in midair? Yeah, can't can form yeah straight right in midair right uh, uh, you know in anywhere practically in a submarine uh, they used to form aboard U.S. submarines. What? Uh, yeah, during World War II they had these uh, you know, basically submarines in World War II were just huge battery banks. Right. With uh, small space for the crew, but most of the space was for batteries and a sure. space for ammo. Uh, you know, torpedoes. Sure. Well, it was possible to hook up a fully charged battery bank across a generator that wasn't turning. So what immediately happens is a very large field begins to build up very rapidly. A lot of current. Yes. And the rate of change of that field is directly proportional to the electric field that gets induced. So a very large electric field suddenly builds up and immediately causes a spark over. Well, typically what would happen, it would burn out the windings. So the Navy, seeing this problem, Designed a special spark gap, and uh, and and off of that particular spark gap, uh, as soon as the spark would begin to develop, then a, a magnetic coil would push the spark out onto the onto the tip of these uh, two electrodes, and very frequently a ball about the size of a large orange would form, uh-huh. float around inside the submarine, and then explode, go off like a twenty-two. I have also heard now I, I don't 45. know uh, forty-five. I don't know if this is true or not. But um, I've worked for some very large 50,000-watt radio stations. Now, they take lots and lots of hits with great big antennas of lightning. It's a normal thing. And at the base of the uh, towers, they've generally got a couple of balls. And, um, you, you know, it's designed to allow a, the, the lightning to jump from one ball to, to the other and then to ground. Mm-hmm. And... I have heard that uh, ball lightning frequently has formed at those locations as well. Does that make sense? Sure it does. It does because a ball uh, is probably the worst path that you can give because it presents, you know, I mean, typically you want to point. If you want to lead a current somewhere, you want to point. Right. And uh, and so that means the voltage builds up, and so when the bolt voltage builds up to a critical value, that means a very large, when it breaks down, when the breakdown begins to occur, means a large current's going to flow. And uh, when that large current begins to flow, it can self-constrict. And when it self-constricts to a critical density, and this density was discovered uh, by two fellows, uh, Hans Alfing, who was a Nobel Prize winner in 1970, and another fellow by the name of J.D. Lawson, independently back in the late 30s. And uh, it was called the Alpha Lawson Limit. And uh, so there is a maximum current density in a current in a plasma. And when that current density is, is reached, that um, the, the current begins to self-constrict, called a pinch effect. But what actually drives the pinch effect and what occurs during the pinch effect is what actually causes or creates ball lightning. Hmm. And uh, basically what is generated then is a ring current. A ring current. Now, that's important. Now, um, suppose I were to ask you, I can understand, based on what you've already said, what creates ball lightning. What I don't understand is what sustains ball lightning. You've said that ball lightning, in rare occasions, has been observed to last for as long as 30 minutes. Yes. How in the hell can it be sustained? What uh, I, I may be asking questions you don't yet have answers to, so when I do just... Uh, 
pipe up. But what could sustain it for that period of time? Well, ball lightning is a, um, you, you know, what I think the unique characteristics of what ball lightning is is it has it has two current modes. In other words, there's a current mode where the current flows around the ring, mm-hmm. and that's called a toroidal current mode. And then there's another current mode, which, which, when the current is very strong around the ring, then at every point across the ring is an anti-parallel current. You know, in other words, if you, if you're standing at point A on the ring, and, and then you look across and there's point B on the other side of the ring. Yes. The current is going the opposite direction right there. Wow. Okay, so that, I mean, in other words, because it's, it, it takes, you know, it's going, if you're standing on the ring and the ring, uh, you know, it goes in the direction of your right hand, and as it gets clear around the ring, the far direction from you, it's going the opposite direction. Right. So, so, so what happens? That means that everywhere opposite on a ring is an anti-parallel current, and according to standard physics, is uh, parallel currents attract one another, anti-parallel currents repel. So the ring tends to expand rapidly. Okay. As soon as it expands, it reaches the cr- the critical current density everywhere in the ring, and immediately the current vector rotates 90 degrees. Now you've got uh, that uh, same rotation characteristics if you had a tornado and joined its ends. Right. Okay. Now now you basically have... Now, now what happens? As soon as that happens, then then, then it tends to contr- it, it'll contract. And as soon as it contracts, then... Now, now the, the type of flow that's going on, the, the current direction at that time is called a poloidal current because... The current is going down the hole, you know, out the back, coming up over the surface, and then back down the hole again. Huh. Sort, sort of like you took a trip into the North Pole, went clear down through the middle of the Earth, and came out the South Pole, and then came up past the equator, and you know, that's the circuit. That's a poloidal current. Gotcha. Okay. And you could see then that that poloidal current then tends to build up very to a very dense limit in the core. And as soon as the alpha velocity limit is hit there, then the current vector rotates another 90 degrees. Okay. And that then makes it a ring current again. So it expands again. So it, it expands oscillates again. back and forth between these two modes. An oscillation. Yes. Yeah. All right. Uh, but still, there are other forces at work. In other words, here you have this self-sustaining, at least for a period of time, current in an atmosphere, which must be... Uh, rapidly attempting to dissipate it. In other words, the atmosphere is going to work on it. Um, because normally a, a current is carried, for example, through uh, something that is conductive, a wire, and generally the atmosphere is not a conductive thing. So this is some sort of self-sustaining thing, but even at that, the, the atmosphere around it is going to work at dissipating it, or trying to, isn't it? It is, but there's a, and this was a, this is something that actually I, I discovered about ball lightning only in the last few months. Um, and, and it really is an analysis of what those two surfaces do. And at the conjunction, you know, I mentioned that there's two magnetic surfaces. Right. And they're counter-oriented. Right. So one is going, the one, the out one, the outside one is going to the right and the inside one is going to the left. Right. Now they're separated by the current sheet. And that current sheet really is a two-dimensional current. And, and, but at the conjunction, we'll call that the the conjugate surface. All right, hold the conjugate surface for the uh, uh, the break here. We're at the bottom of the hour. Charles Cagle is my guest. And we are talking about ball lightning for a very specific reason. And because of the direction, it led him. 
I'm Art Bell, and this is Coast to Coast AM. Taking your calls on the wild card line at area code 702-727-1295. That's 702-727-1295. This is Coast to Coast AM from the Kingdom of Nye with Art Bell. That would be me. And by the way, two things about my website. Number one, it went sailing over 7 million hits since the first of the year. I wonder who number 7 million was. Did you save it on your screen? We had to start marking those who hit the million marks. Anyway, over 7 million hits, and for a good reason, there's a lot of good stuff up there. Take my guest tonight, Charles Cagle. He has an extensive presentation on tonight's website. Uh, so I suggest you go take a look. And uh, as you try to understand what he's saying, uh, we're discussing ball lightning, and we soon will be discussing our own sun. Uh, we're sort of building up to it. I would suggest that you go up to my website and take a look, and uh, if, uh, under the new uh, news area, you'll see the Kegel presentation. Just click on that, and uh, you've got quite a, quite a bit to read and study there for what you're going to hear, that is going to support what you're going to hear, and he's got some very, very good uh, illustrations. So we'll get back to Charles Kegel in a moment. Back to the best of Art Bell. Back now to Charles. And, uh, Charles, we were discussing why atmosphere doesn't almost immediately dissipate uh, ball lightning. Okay, well, the simple answer really is that ball lightning is... The uh, reason it has escaped everyone in the sense of uh, people knowing what it was and why there are 40 different theories is because it, uh, you know, as I said, as soon as it passes through a piece of sheet metal... 99% of what we understand about physics falls off on this side of the sheet metal. <laughs> and uh, right. yet it keeps going. And uh, the reason right. is because what we know about physics, or what we have known, uh, a lot of it has just been wrong. And um, Are these things that Nikola Tesla understood or uh, had some level of understanding uh, that we do not today? W well, you know, that's always... Tesla's always a mysterious figure in the sense that, you know, he's got quite a cult falling right now. And I think I was once in his cult, you know. But but he was a remarkable fellow, and what he understood, uh, he claimed that he could produce ball lightning. In fact, he he wrote, I have never seen ball lightning, but I have been rewarded because I determined its mode of production and was able to produce it with my coil. And that was in 1899 in uh, Colorado Springs. Somebody just sent this to me from the um, uh, Tesla website. Corum and Corum reproduced Nikola Tesla's ball lightning uh, production technique. This type of ball lightning arises when RF arcs with impulsive envelopes of uh, vaporized carbon 
and the Kurams believe the phenomena to be a sort of stable combustion process with carbon or copper and ozone uh, with a diffusion limited something or another that I can't read here, which somehow allows the combustion process. Their fireballs range in size up to five centimeters, last several seconds, change color with time, sometimes terminate existence with a bang. Numerous photos and video still frames of the phenomena are available. Yeah, well, you know what? Those are the first guys that actually cracked it on a regular basis. Really? Sure. And, and, um, I have I have some of their videotapes and, and their material, and I think that they did just outstanding work. And and uh, so they made the they, they, they made they made ball lightning. They made it, yeah. And 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 uh, just like Lawrence Welk's bubble machine, <laughs> you know, I mean, not one or two, but but hundreds. Now they don't last long, and their the machine that they used was pretty low power. I think they said something like eighty watts, but they might have used built a little bigger one, but. Um, so it could actually be done, uh, you know, very easily. Uh, so, you know, I, I owe a lot to those guys, and I, you know, I, I thank them because, uh, you know, seeing their photos, and they, and they did video frame analysis, so they take, you know, they took videos of this, and then frame by frame they took them apart and, sure. and saw that they rotated that they had phenomena that were just like little stars. They produced loop phenomena, darkening of limbs, looked like they had little sunspots on them. They rotated. Wow. They went through what they described as a main sequence of stars um, that would progress through different color stages. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, but then when it came down to it, uh, they analyzed it differently than I did. And, uh, you know, on one hand, I thank them. On the other hand, I think they're wrong about about uh, about what it was. And, uh, and in fact, I know they are. All right. How does ball lightning? You said that conventional physics begins to fall apart when ball lightning passes through uh, sheet metal, for example, steel, whatever. Yeah. Um, how so? Well, I mean, you get a, a, a plasma. Uh, it, it shouldn't pass through. You know. <laughs> It shouldn't pass through sheet metal. It shouldn't pass through uh, dielectrics, but it does. It passes through. Would it would it pass through sheet metal that is grounded? In other words, would grounding ball lightning discharge it as a normal lightning strike would discharge? Not necessarily. Ball lightning, really? in fact, is um, is a, is a giant particle. It's a giant singularity type structure. It's in fact what it what it is. It's exactly like a giant neutron. And, um, and, you know, now if you took a look at that, you know, if, if people would look at your website and there was a particular picture up there which it said the archetype form on it or neutral macroparticle structure. Well, let me see if I can get to it here. Um, is that one of the first ones? Yeah, that's the, that's the one if you want to understand what ball lightning is. Okay, I see ancient earths at the top, a dipole reversal uh, sequence below that. Uh, internal uh, dynamo model for magnetic dipole generation. Is that what I want? No, that one should have been color. What that is is a uh, a drawing of, um, you know, what the current thoughts on the Earth's, the generation of the Earth's magnetic field was. Okay. And, uh, and, and okay, what, tell, tell me what I'm looking for here. Okay, it's uh, it looks like a donut with a section cut out of it, and it's down closer to the bottom. 
Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, oh, I might have it here. Um, let's see. I've got uh, archetype form or neutral. Oh, that's, it. that's it. Oh, that's it. Okay. That's it. That's the structure. Okay. I see it. Okay. Well, right at the interface between those two toroidal surfaces or donut surfaces. Mm-hmm. You know, there's one donut inside of another. Right. Right at that interface. That interface itself, um, which I call a conjugate surface, um, is actually a, a surface of total time dilation. And what that means is that this thing, you know, ball lightning, um, in fact, you know, it's, it's kind of, you have to understand what the potentials are, but but I, but I'll skip past some of this. And, and uh, the, the fact is, is that if you if you had a little particle uh, and shot it at this, as soon as that particle begins to approach that surface, at the at the very surface at that interface, its velocity begins to approach zero. Now, what that means is it means that this thing is impenetrable. It's a it's a permanent stable structure. Really? Yeah. And for as long as it's operational, which could be a very short time or up to 30 minutes, it's impenetrable. Yeah, typically ball lightning exists in a very hostile environment for it, for its survival, um, and and so consequently, uh, you know, it's always moving to find the the least energy position. Is it always born of a thunderstorm? Well, uh, no, not always, but but typically Generally. it's always produced by. Um, you know the, the scenario that I talked about before, which was the generation of a of a uh, ring current from a very dense current element, which occurs most frequently during a thunderstorm or around a th- yeah. thunderstorm. Okay. Yeah, and they did actually a study at Oak Ridge National Laboratories among seventeen, I think it was seventeen or eighteen thousand workers that they had there a few years back, and they found that uh, uh, just a survey who had seen ball lightning and actually found out like three percent of the people had seen it. So it's not as uncommon. As people might think, in fact, it's uh, it's as it's as common as being very near a lightning strike. In other words, typically people are not you know a hundred yards away from a lightning strike. I mean, it happens certainly. Sure. But but typically, I've never been that close to one, and thank heavens. But have you ever seen ball lightning yourself? Yes, actually, I did. Um, I I saw one come out from underneath my refrigerator one day. Oh, um, underneath your refrigerator. Yeah, I had a short, um, and apparently it produced, and this little ball came out and didn't last but a second or two, and and was gone. And and uh, that's interesting. You know, one of the first guys that I, I was up in the mountains of Boulder, you know, above Boulder, Colorado, years ago, and I was interviewing whoever I could who I thought might have seen ball lightning, and I ran across this old miner, and he was running it, you know, he's putting a shaft down, and and I thought, now this guy's surely seen ball lightning up in the mountains here, and so I said, have you ever seen ball lightning? And he says, no. He says, but a matter of fact, I own a restaurant down in Pueblo. And I was thinking, what's that got to do with it? Mm-hmm. And he had one of these great big five-horsepower Hobart mixers. Uh, and he said, you'd dump in a whole bunch of uh, boiled potatoes in this and turn it on. It would lug down, and a ball about the size of a ping-pong ball would come out of the socket where it was plugged in and shoot across the room and then explode and go off like a little twenty-two shot. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, you know, it, it can come from a variety of sources, but typically wherever there's a very uh, super dense current element that reaches that, that alpha loss and limit, 
and produces a little wing current, uh, this thing immediately begins to oscillate and produces a, you know, typically a ball lightning incident. Okay. Um, ball lightning, when it does dissipate, uh, I, I don't know if there are even any real studies, but what percentage of the time does it just simply sort of dissipate as a tornado might dissipate versus the t uh, explosion? I mean, we have, uh, we, we have all these descriptions of a ball lightning exploding. Yeah, they do explode quite a lot, but, uh, you know, I, I couldn't tell you what the percentage is, but, uh, but they do have been noted to just fade away. But they can contain prodigious amounts of energy. A good example is one that occurred uh, in, in the Soviet Union. And uh, a ball came down through the roof of a house, mm -hmm. went out the door, then went 50 meters from the building uh, and exploded and knocked the building down. Oh, it was about the size of a basketball. The Russian engineers came in and surveyed that the damage, and uh, their calculations, uh, they came up and said that the ball had, per unit volume, seven times the explosive force of TNT um, on that type of structure down. So, all right. Is there a way to measure or understand the voltage and current levels that might be within ball lightning typically? Does it, has anybody worked that one out? Well... That's an interesting question, but there, but it turns out that that when it's in when it's in the uh, toroidal current mode, right? You actually cannot measure, uh, in, and it has to do with because it's a, a certain mathematical function of a, a curl function. The divergence of a, any curl function is, is zero, and so it turns out that you can have this ring current, and you actually can't measure it. There are times when you can't measure it because it's a, it's an infinitely conducting um, current loop, and and there's a good analog of that. Would it be producing a magnetic field? Well, depends on whether if 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 it goes into the poloidal current mode, uh -huh. then no, it doesn't produce a magnetic field. In fact, the the magnetic field then is toroidal, and it's closed on itself, and it has zero divergence, and it can't be measured. And uh, weird. Well, and of course that, you know, was part of, you know, because when you, when you, when you blow ball lightning up to a large scale, uh -huh. then you end up having the same thing as the Earth's magnetic field. It's the same structure. And of course the Earth, the Earth, you know, goes through dipole reversals. Yes. Um, yes, we're certainly going to get to that. I, I had a guest on recently who suggested to me that he has measured the Earth's magnetic field, and that uh, in the last uh, 100 or 200 years, um, if 200 years ago we were at a strength of 10, we're now at about a 1.5. And it is his position that um, our magnetic field is has weakened uh, that far. Uh, is there any indication that is true? I don't. Gee, I, you know, that puts me in an awkward position. I... I'd say there's not a word of truth in it. Okay. I, I think that they have measured what they believe is a slight decline, but it's uh, you know, at the most a, a tenth of a percent or so. It's it's a very small uh, amount, and it, and it and it, they're not even sure that it's an ordinary decline or just a statistical up and down. All right. Here's another one. Um, about three or four times a year. I have a lot of listeners out there who monitor a lot of strange things just because it's their hobby. 
And I will start to get calls and faxes, and people will say, the Earth's, uh, or true north, is beginning to wobble. And they will uh, note uh, anywhere between a 5 or a 6 degree change to a 12 to 13 degree change. And this will seem to last for a short period of time, and then it will come back uh, just as it should to true north. Any thoughts on that? Sure. Well, the, the magnetic north... Um, it's not like uh, it's not like the spin axis north of the planet, which stays in pretty much the same spot. Right. Um, it it actually can wander as much as about a hundred kilometers a day. Really? Yeah. Now that doesn't translate into very many degrees naturally, but it actually can wander. I, I've read you know eighty to hundred kilometers a day, so it can it can vary. It, it wobbles around. So if you went up there and decided to camp there and uh, you know, the day you set up your equipment, the next day it wouldn't be there. You know, it it would have moved a little bit. Well, actually, I suppose if you were right up there, it would move a lot. Yes. Relative yeah. to your position. That's right. You'd be chasing it. <laughs> yeah, that would be confusing. All right. Um, and so the reason shortly uh, that we have been discussing bull lightning is going to be apparent because uh, it is your theory, or would you say it's more than a theory? Have you proven it? That uh, that the, the toroidal nature of ball lightning um, is very very much like, in fact, our Earth's um, uh, electromagnetic field. Yes. Well, in fact, it's uh, you know that seems to be to be you know I guess it'd be seeming like I was uh, overly proud, but I don't mean it this way. In fact, I would say it's. It's no longer a theory in the sense that, uh, that I think it's a theory. I think that that's, this is, this is the physics that I believe that people are going to be eventually teaching for the next thousand years. It's, uh, I don't consider it a theory. It's, uh, I, I've got so much evidence. I've, I've spent 25 years on a trail of this. Now that doesn't mean, you know, just because I spent a lot of time that I would necessarily be successful, but I think there's no there's no question on my mind that that I've come up with some solutions that have solved some very long-standing problems in physics and they come right out of this model. Um now the news that lies ahead for us if what you are saying is correct and frankly I think that what you are saying is correct what you are saying uh began as a study of ball lightning but then you found application to the Earth and actually much more. In other words, you, you're saying that this physics, um, this toroidal and poloidal current effect that you're talking about, is present in an entire planet. And in, for, for that matter, uh, would it be also present in the sun? You bet. You bet. It's the same structure in the sun, uh, in other stars, and, and uh, stellar jets, and... Uh, and and it's a ubiquitous structure, and it exists all over the universe. And, and it's that's why I call it the archetype, because the, the ar it's an archetype form, meaning that it is a universal form upon which everything else follows that pattern and is derived from that pattern. So, you know, I consider it to be a pretty significant discovery. Um, and, you know, naturally, it's not going to be people are not going to swallow it overnight. Well, I take it that you have presented this theory to some 
uh, physicists for their consideration. Uh, that's the one good thing that uh, scientists are supposed to do, I, I suppose, is, uh, uh, is, is try to get uh, their peers to look at their work and consider it. Have you done that? I, I have. I, I've taken it uh, to a number of people, and you, but the spectrum of what the responses are uh, ranges all over from they get first got to qualify, and you ask if you have a degree, and if you have no, they don't even listen to you. Uh, to uh, I took it to a fellow who had just quit Los Alamos as a top nuclear weapons designer. Right. And uh, he got a pang of conscience one day, and he said, "What am I doing building?" bombs, I ought to be building young minds. And so he quit and took a job at a small college at a cost, I would suspect, of forty or $50,000 a year. All right, we're, we're at a break point here. We have to break. So we'll finish this and pick up on the relationship when we come back. This is Coast to Coast AM. To the best of Art Bell. From the Kingdom of Nye, Coast to Coast AM continues with Art Bell. Worldwide, uh, the Russians are saying they have an answer. Uh, Americans may soon be back inspecting Iraqi chemical and biological sites. And so we'll see how that works out. Meantime, we're still sending a lot of hardware that direction. Uh, militants, Islamic ones in Egypt, are taking. Uh, credit for the killing of 62 near an ancient temple in Egypt. And, of course, the FBI has ended the uh, investigation of the TWA flight, declaring it was not a criminal act, but rather uh, some sort of mechanical problem. And that's basically what's going on in the world. Otherwise, we are speaking uh, tonight with Charles Cagle, a self-educated physicist, and we've been talking about ball lightning for the last hour, and basically, to summarize, ball lightning is a really, really weird thing, which has all kinds of interesting currents, a toroidal current that goes around the outside, and sometimes a poloidal current on the inside. Now, all of this may be a little difficult for you to grasp, and so we have put on my website, uh, thanks to Charles, uh, very good descriptions, uh, pictorial descriptions of exactly what we're talking about. In other words, what is ball lightning? And uh, if you want to know, go up there and take a look. It's at www.artbell.com. Now, other than the interest side of it, why have we been discussing ball lightning? We're about to get to that. But first, this for you, Charles. Art, uh, a very tangential thought. In the days when the seas were navigated by sailing vessels, I think those sailors would sometimes see something called St. Elmo's Fire. Was this ball lightning? And if so... Why did it happen? In other words, was there something in the configuration or composition of the ship's rigging that was conducive to the phenomena? Well, yeah, typically, uh, it, it's, it's, there's a, a charge buildup. There's a principle you know, that there's a, about 100 volts per meter is the average electric field gradient across the surface of the Earth. And when there's thunderclouds and storms, this can naturally build up and, and in, uh, to much greater values. Typically, you'll find that 
if there's any points on an otherwise flat surface that all the, the field all concentrates at that point. So a ship on the surface of a sea represents points sticking up yeah. in a very large electric field. Well, the so, Chinese uh, are famous, I think, for saying that uh, uh, the, the uh, nail that gets pounded down is the one that sticks up. Yeah. Uh, sort of like that, huh? Yeah, well, this the ship is sticking up, and it's... Uh, and all the electric field for the region typically is concentrated on the mast and the spars. And, and so you get uh, what's called ionic discharge, which is just a, a strong electric field is, is built up around the mast and the spars and the, and the, you know, the rigging. And, uh, and any air molecules that come within you know, close to that, uh, they basically have their electrons stripped off and uh, they then will recombine, and that emits light, and so you end up seeing this thing that looks like a light. It's very much, and the same thing, if you go back, uh, even in the Bible, there was a, uh, the burning bush. Oh, yes. The burning bush was burning a, bush. a really good example of, uh, of uh, you know, you could call it St. Elmo's fire. Uh, here was a tree that appeared to be on fire, and yet didn't... Um, didn't burn. Didn't burn. And, uh, you know, and this is not uncommon up in mountains. We see that uh, sometimes in pine trees up in the Rockies. You'll see, uh, you know, St. Elmo's fire. So it occurs, ships at sea, it occurs, uh, but, but there's some, there's some really interesting things. And you notice when Moses is talking to God or God says, draw near, he says, take your shoes off your feet. Now, That's true. what's that tell you? You know, let's translate it into English. You know, it says, get grounded. <laughs> I see. Well, of course, out, out, out of most ball lightning does not plop Ten Commandments. Yeah. Uh, so. Oh, there, you know, there was a, a question during the break, uh, you know, about the direction of lightning. Okay, no, I, I, I read that to you, and I'll, I'll give everybody, I'll, let me give everybody an idea. It is, by the way, unsigned. It is critical of you and suggests that um, you... Um, must not be educated because it has been proven beyond any shadow of a doubt, I'm giving the sort of a paraphrasing the uh, facts here, that lightning goes from the ground to the cloud, and uh, never does it do anything else. The Navy, he says, has proven this with high-speed photography, and uh, you can go to any research institute and prove it, yes or no? Uh, no. Um, go to, uh, you know, volume 184, number one, July 19... 93, National Geographic. Right. And uh, page 95. And, uh, you know, Lightning Anthology. And it was actually, the consultant was uh, uh, Martin Uman, who's actually written books on lightning. Okay. Um, and this is uh, both negative cloud to ground lightning, A, and positive ground to cloud lightning, C, connect negative cloud regions with the ground. Other types, D, link the top of the cloud and the ground, lightning in and among clouds, you know, so it draws pictures of both positive cloud to ground and positive cloud to ground and negative ground to cloud, you know, so. So it can go both ways. Sure, yeah. All right, and, so it is Anybody argument. that says anything is always one way. <laughs> well, it was unsigned. Now, okay, your study of ball lightning uh, led you at some point to a larger understanding of of our own Earth, of planets, and of the sun itself. Right. In, in what way? Well, it, it became evident. See, I happened to find a, a little ball lightning incident that took place in 1886. 
and it was recorded in Scientific American. And nine persons were were affected by this, and the evidence was that uh, if you analyze the injuries today, these people um, were actually received a really strong dose of fast neutrons. Fast neutrons? Fast neutrons. Fast neutrons from ball lightning? Yeah, as soon as they were exposed to it, and they said it was very bright and it was humming, which means, you know, it was oscillating between the two current modes. Right. And that's a very common signature of ball lightning that hums. And, uh, and, and as it was oscillating, it reaches, it, it actually begins to produce, in, the, in its core, can produce neutrons. And doesn't strip them away from pre-existing atoms, but actually generates them, makes them on the spot. Generates neutrons. All right, now, be careful. We're not scientists here. But I, I guess my question would be, does that mean some sort of fusion process is underway? No. Uh, in fact, in fact, fusion, fusion, we can get to that in a little bit, but, but that's not, uh, that wasn't the source of the neutrons. In fact, fusion can occur in ball lightning. And, uh, and of course, that was probably the big interest in ball lightning because here was a stable plasma. You know, here we build these. We spent $40 billion over 40 right. years building these tokamaks and whatnot at Princeton. And Right. We want fission. We want to figure out fission. fission we want to yeah. understand. Yeah, fission, I'm we, sorry, fusion. Yeah. And we want to figure out how to create it, then how to contain it, and how to sustain it. Yes. And and in ball lightning is that sometimes, you say? Sure. Yeah. It's You know, here it is. It has this big, huge energy density. Um, you know, per unit volume, has it seems to be self-confined, and, and if, if it's even a few seconds confined, it's far longer confined than anything that $40 billion in 40 years have bought us. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they have produced only, I think, a, a very fraction of a second, haven't they? Yeah. 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 Well, this began, I began to develop this model, and I began to realize that this was a pretty ubiquitous structure, and I began to see, you know, the sun was actually blowing Magnetotoroidal bubbles. You know, to, I say magnetotoroidal, and that's a new term. I hate to coin terms, but it's more descriptive than magnetosphere because it's really a toroidal structure. The sun blows them. It, it ejects them out into space. They stay together. They hang together. And uh, Okay, the sun is beginning to get very, very active all of a sudden. We've been through now several years of a real lull. I'm a ham operator. When the sun is not active, when there are not a lot of sunspots and solar storms going on and all the rest of it, things in ham radio get very boring. The frequencies are not active. But all of a sudden, in the last, oh, I don't know, several months, we've been having these great big eruptions. As a matter of fact, several months ago, CNN made a big deal out of this ejecta, um, more than a, the normal uh, sun flare. They said, ejecta, it's a giant ejecta, and CNN said it's headed right at Earth. Yep. And actually, it sort of missed. But but there, it was a gigantic ejecta, and if it had, had hit Earth, uh, what would have occurred? Well, if it, you know, typically what happens when a coronal mass ejection hits the Earth, the first thing it does that boosts the Earth's magnetic field acts like a... Uh, I don't know, I hate to use this analogy, but it, but it acts like a force field. It's a natural feedback mechanism that it, that it hits the, the magnetotoroid or magnetosphere of the Earth, and, and it really boosts the ring current, and the field expands. 
And as it expands, um, uh, then it, it basically kind of acts like a protection against this big blast of ions and, and, uh, which is typically, uh, if it's a, if it's a coronal mass ejection that's hung together, then it's magnetically confined itself. And so it's like, you know, it slams into the earth, the earth's field expands, and when it expands, there is a ring current associated with the earth. Kind of like in the ball lightning. Yes, there is. And, and it, and, and it, there was a fellow by the name of Sidney Chapman, he's dead now, but he was, uh, you know, probably a really famous scientist. He uh, was a, a very strong advocate of the geophysical year, which is, uh, uh, and he was probably the last guy who believed in a ring current. And, uh, uh, but anyway, it'll boost the ring current up. Now, the danger is, is if we get hit by a succession of coronal mass ejections that boost that ring current up so high that it hits the current limit. No, all right, we'll, we'll get to that. Let, uh, that's that's the, uh, the punchline to all of this. But okay. let me understand if I can. I understand a little bit about what a flare is. A sun flare occurs uh, in 11 or 22-year cycles, depending on how you want to talk about it. Increases sort of ups and downs and ups and downs. And we are coming into a very active period. Now, a sun flare is sort of a – it flares out, and uh, we might get bombarded with some immediate uh, – Energy, and then there's another um, group of energy that takes longer to reach us. What is the difference between a sun flare and this ejecta thing? Well, okay, the, the sun flare actually typically is a result of the intersection of two magnetic loop systems, two or more, which then collapse, and they basically uh, release all their energy catastrophically on the surface of the sun, which uh, and, and out out into space, and so this flare is a big burst of typically protons, electrons, and it's a uh, and and it really is a, a, the most violent event that occurs in our in our solar system. A flare? Yes, solar flares. If the Earth was in you know within range, it'd incinerate it. But luckily, we're 93 million miles out. So good. Um, but but typically, when we get hit by a coronal mass ejection. Uh, you know that it really bounces the magnetic field around of the Earth. It it uh, changes the position of the ionosphere, so you get those neat skips. Okay, but again, my question was, what is the difference between oh, what, the, what the we difference, all... the difference between a coronal mass ejection and a flare is, yeah. is that that one is is more or less confined. A coronal mass ejection tends to hang together. It 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 uh, it, it acts like it is a, a very large. Uh, magnetotoroid that's been ejected from the sun. In fact, there's pictures that show exactly that. Is there a parallel to ball lightning? In other words, is it like a piece of ball lightning from the sun? It's the same structure on a larger scale. Uh-huh. In other words, a torus is a torus is a torus. Okay. And it's, it's just a bigger... And, and on the website, I sent one up that I got off a, a NASA site uh-huh. that shows four shots, and, and you can actually see this toroidal structure emerging from the sun. I see That's it. a coronal mass right. ejection. I see it's toward the uh, bottom of the page. I see it. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah, so this thing comes out, and it can hit the Earth, but, but a flare is just that it, this is what happens when a toroidal structure collapses and releases all the energy. All the energy that's contained in those toroidal structures is quite significant, and it uh, then, then basically one is confined, one isn't. You know, so one is a... Is a is a huge burst of uh, of particles that are driven out with considerable energy of the explosion of the flare. Right. It's like some hundred 
million, uh, you know, hydrogen bombs going off. And, uh, so, and, and the other one is, uh, is also quite violent, but it is ejected and it is relatively confined. Now, the interesting thing is, is that after they leave the sun, uh, you can't see them. So you just kind of project it. It looked like it was coming this way. You can't, you can't typically see them. But if you happen to have, uh, uh, a spacecraft out there that has a magnetometer on board, then what they'll see as it passes through is go, you know, the, the, the meter goes flip, 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 and they says, what was that? That looked like we went through a magneto, uh, a magnetosphere. Yeah. Like a bow shop of a, of a comet or, or, or a planet or something. So we know that they're there. They come toward the Earth and they hit the Earth more frequently than chance. Uh, more frequently than chance. Now why would that B, because you would imagine the sun being roughly a great big ball uh, would be ejecting, you know, randomly in all kinds of directions. So why would there be a better than normal chance of it hitting Earth? You got me. I mean, when, <laughs> when I look at when I look at it, you know, if you imagine the the uh, one of these things with eight hundred thousand miles in diameter, and you just take a look at the cross section of that, so you. And then you think about what the cross-section of the surface of the sphere is uh, 93 million miles with a, a radius of 93 million miles. The chances, uh, if they just hit on the equatorial plane, it's about 1 in 54,000. But if they hit uh, anywhere, in other words, if they're ejected in any direction, but they're not. They're typically ejected. I think, I think they typically uh, pass along the, the solar equatorial plane. It's actually could a, it be that we attract them? Well, it, it could be. In other words, could there be a relationship between the Earth and the Sun, uh, well, as there is between a cloud and the ground? There could be, but but I, you know, it's. I'm just shooting in the dark here. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know the, I think the truth of it is is more unbelievable. I think that you know, I I personally think that they're they're directed, but but then that gets into a religious issue and. And, uh, uh, you know, lots of people don't want to hear that. You know, so, um, well, if it's what you believe, that's fine. Sure. Uh, in other words, if, if we should not be getting hit as frequently as we do, and yet uh, there, we do, then either there is a hard scientific explanation or a religious one or both. Yeah. It could be both. All right. Yeah. When we come back, we're going we're gonna to get into the hard stuff. Um, I'm Art Bell. Charles Cagle is my guest. Back to the best of Art Bell. From Florida Online, Space Online, if you will, are the following. Um, Charles, this may relate uh, from Paris. A likely solution to one of the major mysteries of our sun has emerged from recent observations with the European Space Agency uh, slash NASA Solar uh, Observatory or SOHO mission. 
We now apparently have direct evidence for the upward transfer of magnetic energy from the sun's surface toward the corona above. There is more than enough energy coming up from the loops of the mag- loops. Did you hear that? Of the magnetic carpet to heat the corona to its known temperature, according to Dr. Alan Heidel of the Stanford Lockheed Institute for Space Research, a Lockheed Martin Advanced Technology Center in Palo Alto. Uh, he said, "Quote: Each one of these loops." <laughs> loops, carries as much energy as a large hydroelectric plant such as Hoover Dam could generate in a million years, end quote. Uh, so they are talking about loops themselves now. Am I on? Yeah, oh, yeah. Sure. Oh, yeah. Well, well, that's true. And I think that's, uh, they're starting to wise up. And uh, let, let me make a real quick correction. I said 54,000 to 1. If there was a CME that was uh, 800,000 diameter, 800,000 miles in diameter, the chances of it hitting the Earth are about 730 to one. And yet, and, more more than should do. Yeah, if it's just going along the equatorial plane, if it were to go omnidirectionally from the sun, any direction, then it's about 260,000, 225 to one. All right, science knows that there have been in the Earth's history many pole reversals. And I don't know exactly how they establish this. I guess they look at layers of the Earth uh, and drill in core samples and so forth. And, they, and so they know that there have been many pole reversals. Um, what occurs, can you tell me what you believe occurs if the poles were to reverse tomorrow? What would happen? Well, uh, poles can reverse uh, more rapidly than people thought. They thought that they could actually reverse you know, anywhere from a thousand to five thousand years or so to reverse. But mm. studies at Steens Mountain have shown that the actual field can actually move as much as uh, six degrees a day, which means the field could be down in as little as fifteen days once it starts to go. Fifteen um, days. Fifteen days. And what know? what would uh, what would we feel and know as it began to shift six degrees per day? Okay. The first thing that you would now what we're going to do is we're going to look at the sun and use it as an analog. Okay. In other words, what we see going on the sun, the sun goes through a pole reversal every 11 years. Right. And, and it, uh, so it has a 22-year-long cycle, you know, before it's back up to where it was. Right. We, I, as a ham operator, they are able to detect the moment that occurs when they start seeing uh, reversals uh, in the sunspots. In other words, um, what was positive is now negative. What was negative is now positive. Right. Right? And, yeah, and, and, that's and, right. They believe they have already detected that, and we're on the way up. Yeah, we're on the fast ascension phase of cycle 23, which looks so far, if we follow past patterns, uh, cycle 23 looks like it could be the very largest solar maximum ever recorded in the history of the world. Really? Yeah. So uh, it could go the other way, but it uh, it's starting off nicely, uh-huh. which means that we've already been hit by some CMEs. One CME hit uh, the Earth... Uh, uh, back in January and burned out the AT&T 401 Telstar satellite. And uh, and again, a CME stands for? Coronal mass ejection. A whoosh, a big whoosh out of the yeah, sun. It comes out of, yeah, it, it's, it, it's a, an ejected structure. Uh, maintains a pretty, you know, it maintains a structure. If it didn't, it, it'd be dispersed by the time it got here and it would hardly affect us. And then, and then I see these notices on the Internet about X class uh, events. X-class flares. Flares, yeah. What what are they? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, You know, they have M-class flares, X-class. Uh, X, X, according to the 
uh, information I've been receiving would be the highest uh, degree of measurement of Probably. a uh, of, of a flare. Yeah, I would I would think so. That, but but I'd, I'd be just talking into the wind if I because I can't answer you for sure. But the guy who could answer you is probably uh, Kerry Oler. And uh, if you do a search, he, he has a, a site on the web, uh, C-A-R-Y, and his last name, O-L-E-R. And he actually sells software that that uh, analyzes the, the raw data that NASA supplies from the SOHO program. All right. Well, anyway. Okay. Uh, but you ask the question, what would happen? And what happens, the first thing that we'll see, if we're using the sun as an analog, is that um, magnetic loop systems will begin to develop. First of all, the Earth is going to begin to develop a very strong poloidal current. Kind of like ball lightning. lightning. Yeah, a very strong poloidal current, which means from pole to pole through the core of the Earth, a strong current vector begins to appear. Now, that makes sense. We get slammed with one of these CMEs, and the current begins to develop. Okay. Yeah, that's because we're, we're talking about having been slammed by the CME, it drives the current, the current, the ring current up to the critical limit, it rotates 90 degrees, and when it does, now we end up develops a poloidal current, which then collapses toward the core, and we get a really strong uh, current vector right through the core. Now, we know that this is happening on the sun, though I've never seen it written, because we get these big, gigantic magnetic loop systems that begin to come right out of the sun. Where do you think these come from if it isn't from a really powerful current element? Right. And so we should be getting, on the sun then, starting in the mid-latitudes, and there's a, a butterfly diagram I think I might have posted to you, I'm not sure, uh, but starting at the mid-latitudes, we get um, uh, these loops start coming out, and then they begin to move forward. Now, as the solar maximum, if we're talking about the sun, begins to progress over time, then they begin to appear closer and closer and closer to the equator. Okay. So... What we're looking for is what happens when these two, on the sun, when two magnetic loop systems collapse, say one is existing and one builds up underneath it, if they have the wrong polarity, they'll both collapse. And when they collapse, they produce a solar flare, right. which is a tremendous release of energy. Right. So if we use the sun as an analog and say what's going to happen on the Earth, uh, very large magnetic loop systems will begin to emerge, and when they collide and collapse, they'll produce... Uh, they'll they'll release a tremendous amount of energy, and that amount of energy that they'll release will be so horrific that it'll probably cause Richter ten plus movements. Earth with, movement. Earth movements. Uh, there'll be. Uh, you know, I, I, look, I've got to stop you, and a lot of people are going to call me crazy. But for all the years I've been on the air, I have been correlating uh, sun activity with earthquake activity, and I swear there's a correlation. I've been doing this for the last twenty years. Oh, you're not the first. See, it's 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 in the literature already. Well, some people think I'm crazy as a loon, but I, as a ham operator, I watch it very carefully, and I began to plot it, and I began to notice a very distinct, absolute correlation between sun activity and Earth movement. I've noticed that, so I think it's true. There is, there is a uh, there is a correlation, um, but this is a a little bit beyond this because this is a direct change of the magnetic field which produces those loops, and when those collapse, you're going to produce... So a Richter 10 movement generated by these, it depends on where the energy is released. If it's released all below ground, or if it's released uh, you know, partially up in the air, we're going to get a tremendous atmospheric explosion, or uh, if it mostly happens underneath the ground, uh, uh, you know, subsurface, then we're going to get a tremendous earthquake. And that earthquake, 
uh, let's say one happened 50 miles south, uh, epicenter was 50 miles south of where I am, it'd probably create ground waves that would throw cars, uh, you know, 100 feet into the air, 50, you know, 20, 30 miles away. My God. So we're talking about levels of earthquakes. Now, these type of earthquakes, actually, we've actually been hit by them. In eight, uh, 1799, there was an earthquake in Rio Bamba, which I think is now part of Peru. Um, and it threw people out of a village 200 feet across the river is where their bodies were found. What? Yes. Um, and, and that's recorded, actually. Uh, I dug that out of an old 1872 copy of uh, Popular Science. And um, it, it was uh, an article on earthquakes and their causes. So, you know, we actually had some pretty tremendous earthquakes in the past. But uh, but typically, we don't have such movements, so people don't even think that, you know, they're a factor. Well, when this starts to happen, if the Earth goes through a phenomena that's just like the solar max, and it will, and the geologic record indicates that it has in the past, then we're going to have major earthquakes at sea. You'll produce tsunamis that, that as they move... Uh, Toward shorelines, depending on the shorelines, they could build up a tsunami that hits the shore uh, that, that could be a mile high. A mile high tsunami. Yeah, one. Let's say one hit uh, in the, uh, the the Indian Ocean. This, uh, let's say, south of the Bay of Bengal. Right. Okay. So it produces a, a wave that's uh, four or five hundred feet high. Right. Okay. By the time it moves northward and crosses the shallow shelf. Uh, outside the uh, the Brahmaputra and the Ganges floodplains, then the wave begins to increase in height. And by the time it comes ashore, it'd probably be about a mile. It'll go inland. It'll probably kill everybody in Calcutta. When I say everybody, you know, almost everybody. Um, it, it, and, and virtually, you know, that's the most heavily populated area in the world. And, and uh, you know, it's a very real scenario that this will happen. That you'll get a that you'll get a wave in that area and and it'll destroy probably everybody in ben, Bangladesh. It'll probably kill 130 40 million people in a single day. You are uh, you're watching Solar Cycle 23 very carefully, uh, of course. Sure. Uh, indications right now, and uh, we the scientists have frequently been wrong about solar cycles. They they say, well, it's going to be a big one or a strong one or a weak one. And they've been notoriously wrong. It's like trying to predict the weather. But so far, um, it, it, with the, the beginning increase we've had with solar cycle 23, which is now just beginning, is it holding up to be one of the biggest, do you believe? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's building. It's too early to tell, but I think it's, it's got all the earmarks. We've been hit by a couple of nice uh, CMEs. And uh, CME, when it hits the atmosphere, typically will expand the atmosphere to... A little bit, and of course that any low Earth orbit satellites, uh, like Spook satellites, typically uh, it begins to decay their orbit rather rapidly, and they have to either retask them if they can, or. Oh, in other words, the you know I heard this the other day. Someone told me this. So we hit, by, we get hit by a CME. The atmosphere literally expands, and a satellite in a low Earth orbit is suddenly in atmosphere, and has drag that it didn't have before, and begins to re-enter. That's right. Yeah, that is so. That is correct. That's that's basically what brought down Skylab ahead of schedule. That's the expanding Earth theory, and that, folks, if you want to go take a look at my website, is graphically shown. Charles has provided really good graphics to show this on my website right now. Go take a look. 
It's at www.artbell.com. I mean, you really should take a look at this. That's just the, the atmosphere that's expanding at that time. Uh-huh. But you actually are also suggesting the Earth itself is getting larger. Well, I'm not the only guy. Uh, there's books out on the subject uh, that... that uh, and there's now a couple of websites that are up. Uh, one by um, uh, uh, J. Maxlow, uh, M-A-X-L-O-W, and people can do a search on on that as a uh, a name. Uh, also, uh, Carl Luckert, L-U-C-K-E-R-T, and uh, L-U-C-K-E-R-T. And uh, okay. both uh, those guys have websites that show the, you know, the Earth expanding uh, based upon the chronology of the seafloor expansion. Charles, as a CME hits the Earth, there would be uh, an unusually large one, or would there it's sort of like the uh, straw that broke the camel's back. You're suggesting eventually, uh, with a very active solar cycle, there will be an ejecta that will hit the Earth that will be so strong that it will be, in effect, too strong for us, and it will be the trigger that begins the reversal. Is that correct? That's correct. That's exactly what uh, we expect. And I, I expect it, now it could be a one-two punch. You know, in other words, it gets hit by one, so it's an excited state. Another one follows right behind it and boosts it on up. So it actually could be a one-two punch, or it could be just one large one, or two or three in succession. But uh, but it'll happen, and it, and it's happened many times in the past. You mentioned. Uh, you know, we have records that we know this happened at least 171 times since the period known as the Jurassic. So, uh, 171 times? Since at Jurassic? least 171 times. And, uh, and you really think we're close to it occurring again? Sure, yeah. I, and, and, and when this occurs, you've talked about earthquakes, you've talked about tsunamis. Yeah. Uh, what about continental shift itself? I mean, how very serious would this be, and how many of us... I know it's asking a lot for you to predict or even think about this, but um, how how damaging would it be to Earth? Well, it's it's going to be it's it's going to be quite significant in the sense that now there's no you're not going to see any continental shifts. What you are going to see is because at the same time that there's a very large now if this thing can produce these big magnetic loop systems, which are toroidal structures in the core of the Earth. Right. Which come out to the surface, right. and across vast cross sections in the core, on on countless micro domains, there's going to be the production uh, of, of tremendous, probably 175 uh, billion tons of neutrons per second could be produced in the core. Uh, we're talking about a very large amount of mass being produced that begins to be produced in the core. Now, what happens is immediately that expresses as lithospheric, lithospheric tension to the surface. In the form of? Well, uh, it means that, you know, it's like blowing up a balloon. The, the, there's tension on the surface. And what happens where there's tension on hot, wherever there's hot rocks or hot basements? Yes. Let's say of island chains, uh, there's hot basements to the, to the whole Hawaiian island chain. Um, and rocks yield under tension much more rapidly they do under compression. So so immediately this tension gets expressed to those. They'll begin to yield, and immediately you'll see these island chains start to subside. And um, oh, that's an interesting word, subside. Uh, if you're in Hawaii and there are uh, you're on the air in Hawaii right now, they're listening. So when you say subside, 
What do you mean subside? Uh, I mean they'll go down so fast that you won't be able to evacuate the people off of them. That kind of subside. Yeah, you'll 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 get a rapid subsidence. These things will go down faster, and it'll be it'll be such a shock people won't believe that it could possibly move it. You'll see these things moving down hundreds of meters an hour. Hundreds of meters an hour. Yeah. Um. This would apply not just then to the Hawaiian Islands, but any hot basement chains, any hot basement mountain systems, any origins, which is a, a mountain chain. Um, In other words, uh, uh, areas where there might be uh, current volcanic action, that sort of thing? Yeah, where the basements are hot, because where they're hot, they're they're weakest, and that's where the lithosphere will give first. What what would you suspect for areas like, uh, there's a very interesting thing going on at Mammoth right now, where they have been recording these incredible swarms of quakes, and they're uh, actually so concerned with the bulging that's going on there, that they're ready to go to what's called a yellow alert at Mammoth. And one day they expect the possibility of a new volcano there. If uh, we were to get hit with an ejector that broke the camel's back, what about an area like uh, Mammoth? It'll probably begin to subside. Uh, because, it, you, know, you know, if it's above sea level, as soon as it stretches out, then the first thing is it wants to reach what's called isostasia, equal balance. Right. And immediately, uh, you know, it's the Archimedes principle. It begins to, it'll, you know, so as soon as it, it thins out, down it goes. And uh, so you might see any hot basement large mountain chains go down. Uh, start beginning to subside. I don't know how rapidly they'll go, but but I have a feeling that... Uh, well, you said the reversal would be a 15-day process in all likelihood. Listen, hold on. Uh, we'll come back and open the lines next. Charles Cagle is my guest. This... Coast to Coast AM. Wildcard line at area code 702-727-1295. That's area code 702-727-1295. First-time callers may recharge at area code 702-727-1222. 702-727-1222. This is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. It certainly is. Charles Cagle is my guest. And he'll be back in a moment a CME, and then maybe another CME, coronal mass discharge, slams into the earth, and then we begin to go into a pole reversal. Islands sink. Islands with volcanic activity sink, and there's more. And that'll be coming up in a moment. And again, I say, if this sort of material disturbs you, change channels. But I think uh, what Charles is saying... uh, is pretty well documented 
and I would refer you to a web page that Keith put together for Charles earlier today. It took about two hours to put together with a rather careful, a thought-out presentation of precisely what he is saying. You will find that on my website now at www.artbell.com. All right, now, uh, just let me remind my audience, tomorrow night, we've switched things around a little bit. Tomorrow night, Whitley Strieber is going to be here, author of Communion and so much more, and what a story he's got for you tomorrow night. And then the next night, uh, Professor Michio Kaku, who is a, um, a physicist and uh, well, perhaps one of the best-known, uh, best-respected, and I think probably is going to fill the very large shoes of Carl Sagan. Well on his way to doing that. He's a brilliant man. The following night, Friday night, Saturday morning, Bob Frizzell will be here. Bob is really something. He wrote a book called Nothing in This Book is True, But It's Exactly How Things Are. <laughs> now, how's that for a title of a, of a book? Nothing in this book is true, but it's exactly how things are. Sounds like a knockoff from Rush Limbaugh or something, huh? But I understand uh, he's a heck of an interview, and I'm looking forward to it. So that is the immediate, well, actually, the immediate future is Charles Cagle once again. Charles, welcome back. All right, we talked about um, large tsunamis. We talked about uh, if this uh, coronal sun discharge should hit us, hit us again, be finally the straw that breaks the camel's back and start a, um, a pole reversal. Uh, which you think could occur from solar cycle 23, which already is starting out with a bang. Uh, and as a matter of fact, there was uh, news during the top of the hour indicating El Nino, incredibly, is still building. Not that it may have any relationship whatsoever to what's going on, but the El Nino is becoming quite an incredible story on its own. At any rate, so solar cycle 23 is underway, really roaring. At some point, you're saying we're going to get hit, hit again, and it's going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back. This uh, pole reversal will begin, which you think will take about 15 days. We'll have massive earthquakes. Islands will disappear. And what else? Well, uh, it, it actually, it's not a complete reversal that will take place. It'll go to the poloidal current mode, and um, that'll it'll, it'll remain at that period for some time before it actually begins to go through the reversal. But what will occur... Then, now, now, the fact is, is that when the current that generates, you know, this, this poloidal current, uh, there, there turns out that there's no uh, magnetic field at that time. Uh, and the interesting thing about it is what protects the Earth uh, in the mean, you know, normally, uh, the magnetic field of the Earth protects the Earth from coronal mass ejections. Right. Okay. Now, here are these things. They travel, they contain, say, 10 billion tons of mass, these are published figures, okay. mostly protons, electrons. They travel at 623 miles a second. They contain enough energy to boil away the Mediterranean. Now, it's true, it's they're not concentrated necessarily, but nevertheless, they'll when they hit the atmosphere, they'll directly heat it. But fortunately, we are protected from their direct effects because... We have a magnetic field. We have a magnetic field, and, and literally uh, things expand as this uh, ejecta hits the Earth, and we're protected. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're, yeah the magnetic field tends to expand and, and uh, just sort of absorbs the energy 
but when that field is not up, then uh, then the uh, coronal mass ejection that that intersects the, ur- the orbit of the Earth will directly heat the atmosphere. Now, and it can deliver its punch in a matter of uh, depending on its size and and how much of it we catch. Uh, it can deliver its punch in you know four to twelve minutes. And four so, to twelve minutes. Yeah, and it'll only deliver its punch on the sunward side. Charles, do you know um, that? About two months ago, there was news breaking all over the world about Israeli scientists who said the whole idea of the KT event uh, with regard to the demise of the dinosaurs on Earth um, is wrong. And they said what killed the dinosaurs was a fantastic emission from our sun. That's what killed them. Killed them dead. I didn't read that, but... but there's no doubt in my mind that that a series of coronal mass ejections, uh, when the dipole field is down, would be devastating, and uh, really, really devastating to to life on Earth. And and uh, what would it do? I mean, let's assume that the magnetic field you're talking about that normally protects us is down, like your shields are down, and and we get a big CME hit. What what happens? Well, let's let's see what the last people that this happened to said. Okay. And the last people that this happened to. I'm going to say that we look at the legend of Phaeton, which is an ancient Greek legend. Uh-huh. When, uh, and the legend goes like this, that uh, Phaeton was the offspring of Apollo, the sun god. Well, Apollo never showed up, and so the kids at school, I guess they were teasing him and saying, you don't have a dad, and he was taking quite a beating. And But one day Apollo showed up and said, yes, yes, indeed, Phaeton, I am your dad, I am your father, and ask anything you want. After all, I am the sun god. I can do whatever I want. And the son said, uh, the boy said, uh, let me drive the chariots of the sun. And Apollo immediately, you know, you can, I can imagine him clapping his hand over his mouth, wishing he had never said anything. And he said, not that, anything else. He says, you promise. So he said, okay, but just be careful. Keep a steady firm on the reins. Don't go too high or too low. Right. And, uh, and, and, and Phaeton is no sooner that he had left the stables, supposedly, that, uh, the horses felt an unfamiliar hand on the reins. And the chariot of the sun dropped down near the earth and scorched it, and rivers dried up, and forests were set on fire, and lakes and disappeared from the heat, and men cried out to heaven, went up to heaven, burned heaven, and you know, and it just created tremendous havoc of burning the earth and scorching it. And uh, uh, I think, supposedly, according to the legend, one of the gods shot him with an arrow, and he fell out, and, uh, and that, I think it was Apollo, the sun god. But in any case, he died, and and uh, in, in the Greek legend. Uh, the Greek legend of Phaeton, I believe, is the mythologizing of uh, some actual physical events. People didn't know how to explain how did this happen. Why are you know why are this great burnings coming down from the sun and drying up our rivers and, yes. and scorching our crop lines and setting our forests on fire? And men were crying out in anguish; they're being destroyed. You know, and so they they make this you know legend about, it. and they say, well, Phaeton was driving the chariot of the sun, and when it went and it went amok. So we could expect um, we could expect uh, some places if uh, now because a coronal mass ejection is a toroidal structure, depending on how it hits the Earth, it's not just a big ball uh, because then you'd get a uniform distribution of energy and it wouldn't necessarily you know depending on the size and how big it was, it wouldn't necessarily deliver that much right. energy. But but in fact, 
Uh, parts of it can actually have a real large current flow, like uh, the core of it. If the core were to hit the earth, it could actually uh, melt rocks, uh, you know, for a small area. Mm. I, I'm not going to say that it's going to do that everywhere, but, but you'll get a real sudden increase. Uh, I would expect a, a fast wilting of croplands, uh, uh, something like the Amazon burst into flames. But, they're, you know, basically it's over. If you're outside... I'm going to ask you for an estimation. If Solar Cycle 23 that we're now in continues to build uh, and be the biggest in uh, all recorded history, how long, just a guess, do you think in months or years it might be before such an event uh, could conceivably occur in this solar cycle? Well, I'd, I'd say that it could start next week. It could, you know, it, it could start. Um, it might not start to the year you know, till we're well into um, cycle 23 is expected to peak about the year 2000, 2001. Um, so it could it could take place at the peak. It could naturally take place any time between now and the peak or on the wind-down side. So it could actually, you know, take place, uh, let's say, 2003. Gotcha. Uh, anywhere where the sun is still emitting CMEs, um, we don't know how long it'll last. We know that the sun, for example, in the 1600s went into a minimum where, you know, for 80 years it didn't have it. Nobody even saw a sunspot. It's like the sun never went back to a solar max, uh, you know, you know, if there was never a current reversal on it. So we know that it's not, you know, it's not always perfectly cyclic. Okay. Let's go to the phones and see what people say. Um, Wildcard Line, uh, you are on the air with Charles Cagle. Good uh, morning to you. Yeah, good morning, Art. This is Dan in Virginia, and good morning, Charles. Hey, good morning. Um, many, many years ago, I used to be involved in the stereo business and worked with a manufacturer in Germany, and one thing that made his uh, equipment so fantastic uh, was he used toroidal transformers because that would allow the music impulses to go way beyond its RMS rating, you know, like 80 watts. Uh, it could handle musical impulses of three to four times the RMS rating. So if you had a musical impulse, you know, that was demanding 40 watts of RMS, or root mean square uh, power, you could actually hit musical impulses up around 360 to 400. Yeah, well, you know, four times four would be one, 160 or so. But it also... Um, was extremely efficient, so it enabled um, uh, to have higher frequencies much easier, and then also the magnetic field uh, wasn't as strong even as a normal. Okay, where are you headed here, yeah. sir? Okay, what I'm trying to do is is to say we got this toroidal effect that's hitting the Earth, and uh, you know the effects of that on the magnetic field, and Tying this in with the zero point uh, concept, you know, of, of the higher frequency and the lower the magnetic field. So uh, your question? Yeah, I, I don't understand either. What is your question? Well, the question is the uh, what effect is it going to have on the magnetic field? Well, at this time, the magnetic field there's no dipole field on the Earth when the dipole field is down. So when you know when the Earth is when the Earth's magnetotoroid is in the, the poloidal current phase, basically you can't measure a magnetic field. It's, uh, there's an analog to this in, uh, 
in the old memory core chips, uh, not chips, but uh, these little iron core memory things of old, really ancient computers. They would just have a soft iron core, just a little ring, basically. And you run a wire through it, you send a DC pulse through it, and it sets up a magnetic field. Uh, it stores a locked loop uh, magnetic field that's toroidal. You can't measure it. All right, so in other words, in easier way to put it, we would not have a magnetic field. That's right. It would be yeah. zero, unmeasurable, yeah. and we would, in effect, have shields down. Yeah. And if we were at a peak solar cycle and we got hit with an ejecta, well, you've described rather graphically already what would occur. Uh, east of the Rockies, you're on the air with Charles Cagle. Hello. Hi, uh, hi Charles. Hello. This, hi. Yes, Hello. hi. Where, where are you, sir? Hi, this is Steve in Worcester, Massachusetts. Okay. Um, just a couple of things, uh, I'm glad about the WABC for you. You finally got the jewel in your career. Oh, thank you. <laughs> We're so proud, very proud of that. Of okay. And, um, as for your, uh, uh guest Charles, very interesting, uh, very interesting subject. Uh, I, I, uh, have a question about, uh, when you said that the, uh, if this quake should hit, uh, this 10-plus quake should hit in the ocean, uh, it could start off with a four or 500-foot wave. As it comes in land towards, say, the United States, and myself, I live in Worcester, Massachusetts, which is about 53 miles from the coast of Boston, and you, and you say that it could be a mile high by the time it gets to the shore. How... How long, how long would it take a mile high wave to dissipate? How far would a mile high wave go in? I think that I understand the nature of your question. Yeah, if it began yeah, as a mile know. high at the shore, uh, how, how worried should you be how far inland? <laughs> well, you know, it really depends on what your shoreline looks like, what the continental shelf off of uh, Massachusetts looks like, and, and the direction of the wave. Uh, and, and, and I really, couldn't tell you if it hits the shore. You know, I'm not going to say that it's going to actually come ashore at a mile high. I'm saying that there are instances and there are uh, topographies or, or, you know, C4 topographies that, that are conducive to producing such uh, waves when they come ashore. Now, whether that's true off of Massachusetts, I don't know. So, you know, you could, you might be safe, uh, you know, along the seashore or you might not be safe, uh, you know, 50 miles inland, depending on what altitude you're at. Yeah, exactly. West of the Rockies, uh, you're on the air with Charles Cagle. Good morning. Where are you, please? Uh, this is Dell. I'm in Waikiki. This is on KHVH, 830 on the dial. Waikiki. Yeah. The, the active hotspot Hawaiian Islands. Yes. That's it. <laughs> hotspot of the planet. Yes, sir. Uh, I have uh, one question and a quick piece of information uh, you might want regarding the picture of Mariner 9. Yes. But I guess I'll ask the question first. Uh, a person gave me some uh, information about that the sun gives birth to planets and that the sun was supposed to give birth to a new planet soon. And I didn't know if that was, you know, I don't know much about physics, and I didn't know if that was accurate or not. Because I know there's many different theories about how planets are formed that I had never heard that before. Yeah, well, I don't know if Charles wants to answer that one, but uh, it certainly would be one for uh, Dr. Kaku on uh, uh, Thursday. Yeah, I can okay. answer that. Oh, you can answer it. All right. Sure. Yeah, right. as a matter of fact, uh, when the sun has a ring current, you know, that ring current expands. When it expands way out, uh, a cross-section of that ring current can hit that alpha and loss and limit. And when it does, it produces a very large 
uh, toroidal structure out along the planetary plane. Now, this is, this is the same structure. It's the archetype structure, and it's there. And, and it begins oscillating, producing mass in its core, and eventually that mass builds up and becomes a planet. Hmm. The same sort of thing produces moons from planets who already have an existing magnetotoroidal field. When this ring current expands out very large... Charles, you've got to hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour, and caller, I'll hold you. So what can uh, create can also destroy. This is Coast to Coast AM. And Charles, we're about to go back to the phones, but I, I'm going to hit you with a hard one here. You ready? Sure. Uh, this is from Steve in Tacoma. I am so disappointed with your guest. He said a magnetic field is what protects the Earth. He's wrong. Christ is what protects the planet, and only those that don't believe in him can get affected. And that would only be if God wanted it so. So, what do you say? I agree. You agree? Sure. I would. I would say, you know, but it, but it has to. Are we on the air? Well, um, I can never tell from minute to minute, you know, but I, I assume so. <laughs> well, I don't. I don't. You know, it really becomes uh, the great mystery of God gets revealed, uh, even in this structure, and you begin to see that, uh, you know, that virtually. You know, the whole mystery of the universe gets unfolded. The only, right problem, the only problem with what Steve said here is that he doesn't know what God's plan is. Well, and, and he may very well not know, but, but God certainly has uh, written it. I mean, we take a look at what, um, what Messiah uh, stated, and, uh, you know, he said great earthquakes in diverse places, yep. uh, perplexity, men's hearts failing them for fear, the sea and waves roaring, and then we, and so there we got the, the earthquakes, we got the tsunamis, and then we get to the last part, which says, then there's a, four, the fourth angel pours out his vial under the sun, and unto him is given power to scorch the earth. Good answer for Steve. Um, east of the Rockies, you are on the air with Charles Cagle. Good morning. <laughs> Hello, uh, is, is this me? Uh, well, only you know that for certain, sir, but I, I think it's probably you. Where are you? Hi, my name is Eli. I'm calling from New York City. Hello there. I'm enjoying your show very much, Mr. Bell. Thank you. Um, yes, Mr. I'm sorry, what's your guest name? Charles Cagle. Yes, Mr. Cagle, I would like to ask you, <coughs> um, Have you? I don't know if you've seen the latest issue of U.S. News and World Report. Uh, have you? No, I haven't. Uh, if you did, you know what I was talking about. There's an article in there written by two fellows uh, named, Mike, I think, Mike Smeltzor and uh, Michael LeBron. And they say that um, about three months ago that they were abducted uh, by aliens, and it's a very, very believable story, and that they received, they got the whole anal probe thing, and the aliens identify themselves as McConnell and Dolans, and they said that they were... Call toll-free 1-800-618-8255. This well, um, I don't, uh, and uh, moreover, I don't see it as any relevance whatsoever to uh, uh, what my guest is uh, talking about. You're listening to an encore performance of Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. 
West of the Rockies, you're on the air with Charles Cagle. Hello. Yeah, Mr. Bell? Yes. Yeah, I already asked you the question. You said you'd hold me over. And, uh, so oh, I that's right. Something. I'm sorry. Uh, you're, you're on the air, so go ahead. Okay. Yeah, I just, what I had left to say was I had a little piece of information you might be interested in, uh, before you're requesting, uh, about a photograph of Mariner 9. Uh, it's in a book uh, titled The Keys of Enoch, put out by the Academy for Future Science. It shows clearly several pyramids on the surface from 1973 Mariner 9 photograph. Yes. I know that... Uh, oh, there's... Look, there are pyramids <laughs> all over the globe, not just at Giza, but all over the globe. And I suppose it bears asking, Charles, um, there are many, Charles, who believe there have been previous civilizations on Earth. There's a substantial amount of evidence for that. As a matter of fact, they may have come and gone at points when we had polar reversals. Who knows? But the fact is, a lot of people believe that one of these civilizations determined that pyramids have something to do with the um, Schumann resonance frequency of the Earth itself, and that they were on to some way to try and stop or change what otherwise would occur, which is probably what you've been talking about tonight. It's a wild guess, but is is that possible? No, I don't think so. <laughs> okay. This this uh, What's going to occur is, um, you know, if we talk about it, we can talk about it from two different angles. fact is, it's a physical fact that uh, the poles do reverse. Uh, no one's known why. They've always thought it took four or 5,000 years or so. We know that it can happen in 15 days or less. Uh, so, And we know that each time that's happened, there's been a great deal of catastrophic, uh, you know, seafloor spreading, all sorts of different things. So we know there's a reality to this. Now, what uh, we can mix this up and say, you know, is this uh, something that aliens are doing or whatever, you know, or can we stop it? No. If this, you know, and, and the reason I'll say it's no is because this is ordained. I'm going to say it's ordained of God. It's going to happen. Um, and, and there's a particular reason it's going to happen. All the prophets spoke of this. Uh, you know, Jesus spoke of it. He he spoke of it continually, or not continually, but a number of times. Um, and, and it, exactly the same events I'm talking about. I'm just talking about the mechanism. Well, whether you believe it is God or you believe it is nature or you believe it is God with his hand in nature, I don't think it makes any difference. I happen. Yeah, exactly right. Um, first time caller line, you're on the air with Charles Cagle and Art Bell. Good morning. Hello there. Hello, me? Yes, you, you, you. Uh, wow. Art, I've been trying to get all these since Friday. Okay, well, here you are. Where are you calling from? Seattle. Seattle, all right. And since I guess the subject seems to have changed since Friday, I guess I better ask a question of your guest. Oh, that would be good. Yeah. Um, Charles, I've been listening to you quite avidly, and it seems that you're totally and completely convinced that something's going to happen. You just don't know what. Oh, no. He does know what, and he's been telling us. <laughs> well, uh, but precisely what? I mean, Well, how much more precise do you need? A date. <laughs> well, uh, it, that cannot be known. We're, we are entering so solar cycle 23. It looks like it may be one of the most active uh, that we have ever recorded. Now, any time during this cycle, there could be ejecta that could produce the effect that he has described painstakingly tonight, and you can read about it on the webpage. He's not saying on such and such date this is going to occur. He's not a prophet. He's just saying here's the effect, and here we are in solar cycle 23. So he, you're not going to get a date. I understand that. Well, no, you don't. You said, I want a date. No, I, no, I was just saying that a, a date would be nice. I wasn't so, sorry, asking. no date. <laughs> I understand that. Okay. But my, my main question has to do with, it seems that Charles is somewhat fearful of the coming events. 
Oh, I don't know if I would describe his presentation as fearful. Well, I, w- it, it, I might be a little fearful. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Well, considering it's going to kill off probably two-thirds of the population of the world. Um, well, I would expect... You can't give me a date. You couldn't give me a number on that either. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, he can. He yeah. just did. You're missing it on all counts, caller. Um, and he said he couldn't give a date. He said it could occur on the upside or the downside of solar cycle 23. Uh, and with respect to the amount of damage or deaths, he just gave you a number. Uh, that guy just wasn't listening. Uh, wild card line, you're on the air with Charles Cagle. Hi. Uh, how you doing there, Art? Okay. Uh, this is uh, Clark. I'm calling from Biloxi, Mississippi. Yes, sir. Yeah, I, I, you know, this is a real interesting program. I've uh, had, uh, well, a rather large track of land out here, and me and my neighbors seen these basketball-sized lights uh, that you were talking about earlier. Ball lightning. That's right. And, uh, well, what they seem to call ball lightning, whatever. But the first few settings, we noticed that these balls of light always pollute or come after a lot of activity over here at Keesler Air Force Base. One of my neighbors even experienced an encounter with, it, uh, you know, a UFO and claims that he saw see, uh, three of these ball lightning deals come out. Uh, my question is pretty obvious, I guess. Uh, why is it these balls of lightning can't be intelligent? Because uh, ones, ones I've seen seem rather intelligent in their movements, and uh, I'll listen off the air, I guess. All right. Well, it is. it certainly is true, uh, Charles, that associated with a lot of UFO sightings have been what appear to be ball lightning. They have... Uh, lights that appear on a regular basis and appear to be ball lightning down in Texas in certain areas. And would it be reasonable to suggest that near large electromagnetic fields produced by whatever, ball lightning would not be uh, as unusual a phenomenon? No, I, I don't think that it would be unusual to be produced anytime you've got, if you have a large magnetic field that's changing rapidly, then it induces a uh, a, a large electric field, which then induces a current, which then could produce one. And ball lightning has been known, as I said earlier, to go down chimneys and come roaring out of fireplaces sure. and go through windows and all the rest of it. Oh, there's and, no question that there's a... Uh, and the human mind tends to want to try to make sense out of nonsense. And uh, I don't think there's actual intelligence involved. I mean, what do I know? Maybe there is. But I think we're just associating this kind of weird action with some sort of intellect. Well... You know, <laughs> that's a question. I actually, you know, really uh, studied that very, very intensely for a while because, um, you, you know, there seems to be, um, yes, that there. I'm not going to. I'm not going to rule it out. And, and the reason I'm not is because I mentioned what is at the core of these things is a time gradient field, which is the same thing as eternity. Yeah. And uh, and. You know, we always speak of God who exists in the midst of eternity. Yes. As a very non-local God is, you know, and that's, and that's almost, that's a physical term, non-localism. And, uh, so in fact, uh, so we have a very large structure that's setting around the, uh, that's just like this, a ball lightning type structure that's on the burning bush. Is there intelligence in there? You bet. As you approach that, then you approach eternity. You, you, you come right in basically into the presence of God. Now, is you know this particular structure also uh, corresponds to a general structure of any intellectual being? I would suspect. Hmm. Um, you, you know, if if this archetype form conforms to the structure of, let's say, the general structure of the universe, then you would see that at any different level. So, 
you know, could it be? Certainly. And, and, but it, but it gets off into such a, a weird area. But, uh, you know, but, you know, I would say yes, that, that it could. All right, I'll, I'll just take a yes. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Charles Cagle. The board. Yeah. This is uh, Vince in Chicago. Hi, Vince. Uh, first, our little sideline question. Uh, you said Richard Holden's going to be coming on. Talk about the Pathfinder. Yes, uh, probably next week would be a good uh, guess, Vince. I'm, I'm really wondering about that extra fuel that they've been carrying on there. Yes, I know. Uh, you can ask him next week. Okay. Uh, Charles, uh, as we get closer to this possible uh, uh, pull reversal, yeah. do you have any expectations about uh, things that just the everyday person might notice that we might be getting closer to it, and by that, like electrical devices, uh, like computers going on the fritz or, or yeah, any no, sort of yeah, uh, you know, yeah, especially computers I'll, going I'll on the I'll tell you exactly what to look for. Okay. You start looking for a rapid variation in your compass. And uh, like I said, within a few days, you start seeing the field go down. In other words, when we get hit by a CME, the first thing that's going to happen is that, you know, we'll get a change in the magnetic field. The rate of change causes uh, all sorts of associated phenomena. Uh, for example, you'll get aurora borealis and aurora australis down in uh, Australia or, you know, off the southern continent. Ooh, there. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Somebody sent a fax saying, did you know, Art, that aurora borealis, generally thought to be at a great altitude, has been observed actually near the ground. It's been seen on the ground, actually. On the ground, really? Yeah. There, there are some cases where, where people have claimed it's come right down to the ground. Huh. Uh, so, so anyway, so we watch for. So you look for as soon as you see the field. You know, if you get an announcement, you hear announcement on the radio that the Earth's magnetic field appears to be changing rapidly. You know, personally, if I lived in Hawaii, I'd fly out. Do you think? Uh, this is kind of a hard question or an easy one. I don't know. Uh, if it did occur, would it really be made public? Well, get a compass. You know, they cost a buck at your local dime store. Yeah, see, that's what worries me. I told you now, about three times a year, we've been getting these uh, these brief shifts of several degrees, which last uh, anywhere from a day or two to three, and then suddenly it snaps back. Any way you can explain that? Well, I think it's just a variation. Uh, you know, for example, when we do get hit by a CME, and we got hit by several a few days ago. Yep. And uh, so you do get a variation in the field, and when that happens, you very well could see some sort of a declination appear temporarily. But um, I wouldn't go out and uh, commit suicide as soon as I saw uh, my compass turn three degrees. I would. Uh, oh, look, I wouldn't anyway. I'd stick yeah. around. You know, I want to see the story play out. It, it, it will, and it'll play out, and, and, uh, and I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a foregone thing. It's gonna happen, and it's happened many times before, and it's a, you know, that, what I'm saying is that, you know, we're told to look for the signs. The signs are here. They're here in spades. Alright, uh, West of the Rockies, you're on the air with Charles Cagle. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. I tuned in a little bit late. Okay, where are you? I'm in Denver. Denver, okay. And from what I've gathered so far, the thing that makes this planet vulnerable to to these cosmic forces is a lowering of our magnetic fields. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, then my question, I guess, is would it not be possible to simulate a magnetic field? I agree with Charles. I think that this is going to happen. Um, with all of our technology, can't we 
Can't we synthesize a shield for ourselves? Uh, interesting question. Uh, it is an interesting question. In other words, if, yes, if we are protected by the Earth's magnetic field and it were to collapse, would there be any way to artificially create a field that would give us some temporary protection against uh, more ejecta? No, that's, uh, that's beyond our technology, and it's beyond our, uh, you know, we don't have that much power. Uh, we couldn't, we couldn't, we couldn't combine all the generating plants in the world and generate spit enough to produce something that would, um, you know, that could counteract this. Uh, you know, it's a process that's, uh, that's gonna happen. It's not a case of something that, you know, I mean, it's kinda like an ant where, a, you know, a wave of the sea comes. Back. Gotcha. He's not gonna hold it back. Gotcha. Um, east of the Rockies, you're on the air with Charles Cagle. Good morning. Where are you, please? I'm in uh, near Wilmington, North Carolina. Okay. On the air you are, uh, so go ahead. Uh, I would like to ask your guest. Um, well, actually, I've written and write many books, but I haven't gotten anything on a national level. And I, he and I have kind of gotten into what could be called unconventional knowledge or not particularly college knowledge. And I was wondering how he got at first got interested in the subject that he's interested in. Okay, well, that's, that's an easy answer. And uh, the, the answer is that he began to study ball lightning. And uh, from the physics of ball lightning, uh, he began to um, understand the physics of the planet that we live on and the sun that shines in our eyes for X number of hours per day and applied all of that um, uh, to his conclusions which, by the way, are uh, readily available on my website to see. And that is what I recommend, that everybody um, go on up there who can or go to a library and go to my website and just click on the name uh, uh, Charles Cagle, and it'll take you immediately to an entire page of painstakingly put together by my webmaster uh, from material that Charles sent. And you can uh, you can read about it. Uh, east of the Rod Rockies, you're on there with Charles Cagle. Hi. Hey, Art. Uh, Where are you? I'm in uh, San Antonio. This year. San Antonio. All right. Yeah. Uh, was the question that this this asked about uh, we had enough power to generate a, a, a our own magnetic field? Right. I was thinking right now. Has anybody asked a question about HARP or anything? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, but we can. Uh, there is, of course, HARP, uh, which is an ionospheric project. Uh, I think, though, that, uh, well, as a matter of fact, uh, why don't we ask? Do you know anything about HARP, Charles? Well, I know that, you know, it's one of those things that where, where uh, you know, what I've read on, on the websites, you know, and what I've read is that, uh, you know, you've got some big antenna systems that, uh, that uh, you know, ostensibly could be used to begin oscillating the, the actually, the geomagnetic field. Uh, whether or not... Uh, Personally, I think it's ill-advised to mess with it, <laughs> but, but, you know, that's... I share that, and, of course, Nick Begich, Dr. Begich does, who wrote uh, Angels Don't Play This Harp, and they are proposing to focus enormous amounts of energy, not widely dispersed on the ionosphere, as you would normally do with a radio transmission, but um, the other way around, starting as a wide beam and ending as a narrow beam, lit literally burning a hole in the ionosphere, and... I don't much like the idea myself. Listen, Charles, what I'm going to do is ask everybody to review my website with all of your material on it. And I'm going to have you back uh, in a week or so, if, if you're willing. And we will cover this more extensively. It will give, you know, everybody out there about a week to try and absorb 
what it is you've got on the website. Uh, it takes a, a little thought. So how about that? Would you be willing to come back and say a week? Sure. Yeah, in the meantime, you could also direct them uh, to my website, which is which you have done, I think. Oh, yes. Yeah. We've got a link on there. Yeah. All right. Because, you know, there are some solutions that we can use and, and some technology that's right on the horizon that came right out of the same study. All right, my friend. Listen, we're out of time, but I, I thank you. It has been extremely educational, and personally, I think you're dead flat on the mark. Uh, so keep it up, and uh, we'll have you back. Charles, thank you. Okay. Take care. Good day. Uh, that is Charles Cagle, and that should give you something to think about. Open lines when we come back. I'm Art Bell. This is Coast to Coast AM. Well, I thank you.